Welcome to another Explore History podcast. I'm Dr. Scott McLean, and I'll be taking you on this little journey, something which is quite fitting for this one because the document we're going to look at now is a travel journal. Uh, it was written in 1926 and gives us a very interesting little window into that period. The journal was kept by a woman while on a Mediterranean cruise. It was a three-week trip aboard a ship called the Orbita, built in Belfast by Harlan and Wolfe in 1913-14. It was an ocean liner used by the Pacific Steam Navigation Company for transatlantic voyages. In 1923, it was purchased by the Royal Mail Steam Packet Company, whom it remained with until later in 1926, when it reverted back to the Pacific Steam Navigation Company. During World War II, it was used as a troop transport, and after the war, was the first ship after the famous Empire Windrush to bring immigrants from the West Indies to Great Britain. And we don't know the writer's name but she frequently refers to her traveling companions. So we hear a lot about Margie, Meg, and Mary. The ship embarked from Southampton and over the course of three weeks would make stops at Gibraltar, Tunis, Palermo, Naples, Corsica, Barcelona, Majorca, and Tangiers before returning back to Southampton. The journal is handwritten and for the most part relatively easy to read, though the writer had a habit of using some short forms that made deciphering some of the text more difficult. It also reads a little choppy in places as the writer is at times just putting down the basics like weather conditions, the overall course of events, without very much elaboration. In other places, she provides much more detail. And like the trip itself, the journal begins on January 30th, 1926. So here we'll jump right into the journal. January 30th. Started from Southampton at 5pm. Margie and Dee traveled by train from Waterloo and found Mary and Meg safely established on board. January 31st. Exceptionally heavy swell in the bay. I remained in my cabin. Meg was the only really strong member of the party. February 1st. Still fairly rough. I came on deck for an hour but did not enjoy it. February 2nd. Mary assisted me to dress and come on deck in the morning. I came up again by myself at tea time. Westerly gale still blowing. February 3rd. Arrived at Gibraltar at 10 a.m came down to breakfast and were landed by tender with Mr. and Mrs. Richardson and on to the Bristol Hotel and ordered luncheon for 12.45. Here secured two cars for 2 p.m. Mary, Meg and I walked up on the Europa Park side and got a lovely view of the harbour and basked in the sunshine. After lunch we motored to Algecira with the Richardsons and had tea at the Rica Cresteria and saw the beauty garden, boxia roses and flower and orange and lemon trees. We got back to Gibraltar in time to catch the 5.30 to Orbita, and we sailed at 9 p.m. February 4th, a perfectly lovely day. Sat on boat deck and were really hot. Played deck quoits at intervals. Watched race and games in the afternoon. Boat drill at 5 o'clock. Gorgeous sunset. Carnival dance in the evening. We each selected a beautiful paper cap. February 5th, went on deck at 6.30 a.m. Watched ourselves come into Algiers. Went to shore at 10 a.m. We got the cook's representative on shore to get us a car, and he provided an extremely good one from a new hotel, the Oriental. With a French-speaking driver, we drove to Bleda, but did not stop there, as cook's party were in possession at one or th through the wonderful gorge to Suger to Shifa. There we had a good lunch at the little restaurant and tried to take photos of the monkeys which came down to be fed. We drove back by the seafront, a long way but lovely view. We had tea at the Hotel Oriental and were shown all over it. It had only been open a month and was very attractive. All built in Moorish style and with some lovely old carpets and tiles belonging to the proprietor. 
After tea in the garden, we walked back to the town, rather a long way. We did a little shopping at a little shop of French lingerie. The wind got up with a sudden squall and sandstorm after we got on board, and the orbit broke one of its moorings and crashed against the pontoon and broke it in parts so that the people returning later had rather an unpleasant time. Some had to wait till midnight before they could get on board. We did not get into the Arab quarters at all. They were reported to be very dirty and smelly. We had a quiet evening. February 6, a day at sea. The deck games competition started. Most people's time was spent vainly trying to find either their partners or their opponents. I was out of both Depkoits and Bullboard in the first round. Margie and Meg neither managed and got three partners. Mary carried on Bullboard through three or four heats but was finally defeated by Mr. Richardson. February 7th. Celebration on board at 7.30, taken by the Bishop of Coventry. We anchored outside Tunis about 8 a.m., it was nearly three miles from the shore and the ferry service consisted of a tender and a Noah's Ark filled with chairs like you have tea on at the zoo. It took an hour to get across. We were lucky in getting onto a beach which took half the time. Cook's party went to Tunis so we went by tram in the direction from Labak to Carthage. We got a little carriage with two ponies and were driven around to all the different excavations and ruins where we got out and stayed as long as we liked and then went on again. We finally landed at a little French hotel on the top and had luncheon out on a terrace with a perfectly lovely view. We then visited the museum which was close by and opened from 2 to 3 p.m. Afterwards we tried to find another basilica but only managed to see a villa. We caught a train back to Labac in time for the 4.30 ships other boat and had some tea when we got in. It was a lovely day and quite hot, and we thoroughly enjoyed every moment of it. February 8th. Margie stayed and rested on deck as she had been to Tunis before, so Mary, Meg, and I went over in the ark and took the train to Tunis under the care of a nice old guide procured on the quay through the Richardson's American Express Guide. On arrival at Tunis, we went straight to the native quarter, the guide stalking in front, usually in the middle of the road, and we breathlessly pursuing. We went first to the Jewish quarter, Everywhere it was a network of little streets under cover, lined with shops, and each street has its own particular line of business. One, for instance, where Arab women can buy French clothes. We were shown a very old courtyard of what had once been a grand house and is now divided into flats. We went to the Bay's Palace, magnificent tiles, fine carvings looking like lace. There was a splendid view of the whole city from the roof. Our guide also took us into the divorce court, which was interesting. The men who were tired of their wives sat on one side, and the unfortunate women waiting to be divorced sat on the other side. We then went to the shops in the Arab quarter. Mary and Meg looked at Kaiwam rugs, and we had a very amusing time sitting on a sofa drinking Arab coffee. Not very nice. While our old guide looked on and occasionally offered advice. We walked back to lunch at the principal hotel where the Richardsons had reserved a table for us. After lunch, we got our old man to take us back to the bazaar for another hour. We bought various things, including the desired rug. We left Tunis by train about 3.30, got back to the ship for tea, thoroughly pleased with ourselves and our purchases. Sailed 7 p.m. February 9th. Arrived Palermo 8 a.m. Got on deck by 7.30. Went ashore directly after breakfast. Took a carriage on the quay and drove to the cathedral, a fine building outside. Not very interesting inside. Walked on to the Piaggio Real and saw the perfectly wonderful chapel, entirely mosaics depicting Bible history, both Old Testament and New Testament. We went up to the roof of the palace for the view. We then took a tram Montreal, changing into funicular at La Roca, 
It was perfectly lovely there. We had a rather Italian lunch at the little restaurant, most of which we gave to a starving cat. We went to the Duomo, very fine and lovely cloisters. We descended again by train to Palermo, and there took two carriages with good horses and tidy drivers, and drove with our cards and letters in our hands to the Villa Montfoy. The lodgekeeper was dubious about letting us in, and we then arrived under a portico with two or three men servants standing waiting. They took the cards and letters and soon returned to usher us in. Mrs. Whitaker was charming, most apologetic for not knowing we were coming so soon. She took us round the garden and let us pick ourselves bunches of enormous violets. We then returned to the house and saw some of the reception rooms and lovely tortoiseshell furniture. Mr. Whitaker then appeared and we had a hasty tea as we were so afraid of missing the last launch at 5 p.m. They were most kind and friendly. We thoroughly enjoyed it and want to go and stay there. Sailed at 6 p.m. February 10th. Arrived Naples 8 a.m. It remained gray the two days we were there, though raining Mary and Meg went ashore early and put in an hour at the museum. They came back for us at 11.30. We went by electric train, starting 12 noon to Pompeii. It took about one and a quarter hours. We took sandwiches to eat en route. We got a very good guide on arrival who spoke English well and was intelligent. He tried to stick out for a large sum, but we ended amicably. We spent nearly three hours in Pompeii. It is too wonderful to describe and quite different to anything I had imagined. The town is almost square, four central streets, as at Gloucester, and then side streets, all rows of houses with little shops with their own bit of road in front for which each were responsible. We saw several of the principal houses, all built round a garden with pillars. We went into the museum, to the forum, the theater, and one of the two temples. We did not see the newest excavations, but should not have had legs to do more if we had been able to get a permit. We had a refreshing cup of tea at the station, caught an express train at 4.20, which only took an hour. We enjoyed it thoroughly, but the walking and excitement were very exhausting. February 11th. Margie stayed on board and rested. I went to show with Mary and Meg for an hour and shopped in the morning, and Meg went off again to the shops in the afternoon. We sailed at 6 p.m. There was a concert on board in the evening. We looked in for a bit, but took advantage of the interval to go to bed. Mary and Meg were relieved that their services were not required. Lovely morning at sea, though cold wind. Arrived at Ajaccio about 1.30. Went to shore and had a lovely walk up behind the town along sandy lanes. Glorious views everywhere. Quite decided to write there. Had tea in the hotel garden full of red hot poker and violets. Came back on board about 5. February 13th. Hard day at sea. Quite warm in the sun on the boat deck in the morning, but it turned very cold in the afternoon. Everyone retired to make their fancy dresses for the ball. It was an enormous success. Most amusing, and everyone said they had seldom seen so many excellent costumes. The gale blowing in the passages was rather detrimental to Margie's snow and ice boots and umbrella. She went as home. Mary looked simply perfect as an Egyptian. Meg was a peasant and wrapped in my liberty silk called myself Sugalese. February 14th. Celebration at 7.30. Anchored at Barcelona close to Mole. Went ashore about 10.15. Took a taxi under care of Thomas Cook's representative and drove to the cathedral. Attended the end of high mass. Much pomp with cardinals or monks dressed in purple with fur bibs who processed about. After service, we went round the cathedral into the crypt under the high altar and round outside to the cloisters. There were green birds in a pond in the middle, not either geese, ducks, or swans, with crinkled feathers. 
The cathedral is very dark and vast. Lots of whispering. We then told the taxi to drive a little round, but stopped him when he f we found ourselves en route for Tibidabo. Returned to the boat after seeing several cars and some most fascinating children ready for the carnival. A very amusing scene in the quay where the driver gave a shortage of change and the interpreter and the police insisted on my getting my full amount. February 15th. Went to shore and looked at the Barcelona shops. Nothing very attractive except Spanish shawls. We sat and looked on while Margie bought a beauty for herself. We walked along the rambles and bought tambourines. Then I went into the Credit Leonis to cash a check. Mary came with me to an upstairs office where the transaction took over 40 minutes. Margie and Meg were beginning to get anxious as to our fate. We returned to Orbita for luncheon and sat on deck all the afternoon. It was nice but would have been nicer for not being so cold and sunless. We left at 9 p.m. and the lights of the harbour were very attractive to watch. We decided that the harbour was really the best part of Barcelona. It was very interesting seeing various liners and mail boats come in and out. February 16th. Arrived at Palma about 7 a.m. We went on one and only expedition with Cook and it was most successful. The whole day was delightful. We went by car to Solar, a wonderful drive through the mountains and with views of the sea. We stopped two or three times to get out and see a view and also at Valdemosa, where Chopin had lived before his death. We visited Solar Harbour, which was rather a sweet place, and then had luncheon at Solar, a charming place surrounded by hills. All the little houses looked so clean and neat, with front halls, doors open, a little row of chairs in each. There was a carnival going on, but it did not seem to consist of much besides a band and a good crowd of people. We went into the church, which was dark, but felt nice. We came back to Palma by a special train with beautiful saloons with armchairs dressed in clean Holland. We got some lovely views between the tunnels. We got to Palma about five and drove from the station in the native cab, which was like a small omnibus, mostly painted yellow, and some had pictures inside. Margie went back to the ship. The other three of us walked along to the cathedral, a very large, beautiful nave and pillars. It was very dark, but a service was just beginning, and all the candles were lit on the high altar. They started singing psalms very out of tune, so we caught the six o'clock launch back to the ship. We sailed at 8 p.m., watched the dancing till bedtime. February 17th. Celebration at 8 a.m. A very much warmer day and sun came out, and it was perfectly glorious on the boat deck where we spent the day. Watched the finals of deck tennis and tried a game ourselves. Margie and Meg got on rather well, but I was quite hopeless. February 18th. Arrived Tangier, 8 a.m. Margie and I decided to spend a happy day basking in the sun on deck, which we did. We did a good deal of shopping on board and got some quite good purchases of leather cushions and bags. Mary and Meg went ashore with Miss Chadwick under the care of Mr. Richardson and a guide and thoroughly enjoyed themselves. They returned soaked with waves, but happy, were able to get us some lovely flowers for our table, Arams, Iris, and Prescia. We left Tangiers at 8 p.m. February 19th. Quite a nice day and sun was still hot. We played games. Oh, no, I didn't. There was a slight swell and I lay rather quiet and had my lunch on deck. A brisk walk round the deck after tea brought on a crisis, after which I was able to enjoy my dinner and danced afterwards. February 20th. Began bright and early, and Margie played off to heats of deck quoits. Sports in the afternoon. Prize giving after dinner, which we did not attend, the atmosphere was wicked. We danced and stayed up a bit later, being the last. February 21st. Celebrations 8 a.m. Service at 10.30, packed with people. 
It was cold early, but we were able to sit on top deck later, but missed our usual front row dress circle as we had thought it too cold to reserve seats. I packed after tea. Margie and I and the rest of our table dined with Mr. Belloc, also a Miss Dory. We sat at a long table up near the dais and had a very grand dinner and sherry and champagne. Anchored off Isle of Wight for the night. February 22nd. Arrived 8 a.m. in dock. Not allowed off and then had to wait for customs, so missed train to Sirencester. Came by special to London. Auntie gave us lunch. Margie caught the 115 at King's Cross and we three came home by 3.15. So there you have it. That's the journal of this woman that was going through the Mediterranean. And I guess the question is, what can we learn from a source such as this? Well, first of all, we have to acknowledge that there's a limited amount you can expect to get from such a source, but that doesn't mean it isn't of interest. First of all, it tells us a great deal about the writer, despite the fact that by the end we still do not know her name. We can confidently state that she was someone of some means. We know this because first, she could afford to go on a cruise. Secondly, the amount of shopping she mentions suggests somebody with a good disposable income. Third, she has a keen interest in ancient history and archaeology, and this suggests that she has a good education, as does her command of the English language and ability to write. Fourth, she appears to be familiar with traveling by car, which in Britain in the 1920 was still very much something associated with the upper class, although members of the, the middle class were increasingly able to purchase themselves a car through the 20s and 30s. Fifth, she has a strong interest in gardening and a good knowledge of different flowers. Prior to World War I, gardening had been very popular, but was much more something associated with the upper classes. During the 1920s and 30s, we see an interest in gardening growing with the expansion of Britain's middle class, becoming one of the most popular pastimes. This document also tells us a great deal about the growing appetite for travel at this time in the interwar period, something which was growing considerably. And this is because there was a growing number of people in British society that had both the means and the available time to take a holiday. It also tells us a lot about how some of the places visited have changed over time. I often come across old photo albums from the period with pictures from many of the same places and even much further afield. One I picked up a few years back was filled with pictures of several young English women traveling through Egypt, Syria, and Iraq, picnicking at famous archaeological sites. Makes you think how times have changed in many such parts of the world. But what really stands out for me in many sources like this that I have ever read is the often subtle and sometimes not so subtle sense of cultural superiority that went hand in hand with the British Empire. Where a source such as this becomes more interesting and valuable in trying to answer specific questions when we can add it to other similar accounts. Fortunately, this same writer would make another trip in 1928, the journal of which will form the basis of the next podcast in this series. Hope you found this of interest. If so, stay tuned for the next in the series. In the meantime, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Visit the Explore History website at explorehistory.co.uk. Check out some of the videos on YouTube at Explore History Limited. Dr. Scott.